Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what this show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Just one more thing before we start. For anyone listening on the Epsilon Theory audio feed, we have also created a YouTube channel for the podcast. The channel can be accessed at youtube.com backslash at breaking news pod. And we encourage you to subscribe if you would like to watch the episodes on video. Thank you. We appreciate it. Welcome back to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler. That's Ben Hunt. And that's Jack Forehand. Hi, guys. Hey, How are Matt. You? Great to be back. All right. So today we're going to be talking about the incumbents as political entrepreneurs. So last time in the last episode, we got into what about startups political entrepreneurs, startup yep. political entrepreneurs, <laughs> how they uh, how they break into, define a new market and compete. And this time we want to talk about the people that are on top. So Ben, let's 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 start with this because they're still using narrative to their advantage, but they're kind of playing a game of defense. And maybe where we start is just define what what is an incumbent and maybe a little bit about what this continuum that seems to exist here. Like what's the difference between a Donald Trump versus like a Chris Christie or, um, or with Biden as the incumbent. And then we get into like, I don't know, like the Nikki Haley's and the people like that. So incumbent and maybe the shades discuss. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I, I think you describe both Chris Christie and Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, frankly, as being more on the incumbent side of things uh, in terms of, look, they've held elected political office. In fact, of course, with, with Donald Trump, the highest elected political office. So it doesn't make sense to describe them as, entre, you know, insurgents, right, as, as newbies, like a Vivek or someone like that. But I, but, I, but I think you'd absolutely have to agree that when you think of whether they are an insurgent, whether they're, they're an outsider or an insider, I think that's the distinction you're trying to, we're trying to pull together here now. I think we would still describe, I think most people would still describe Donald Trump as that outsider. Chris Christie, on the other hand, is being very much an insider. And there was a I think that's probably a more, from a narrative world perspective, uh, a, a healthier viewpoint than thinking, oh, if you held political office before or have you, or, or have you not? I, I think that insider-outsider dynamic is probably what we want to talk about today. So inside of that, there's, so last time we talked about this difference, better versus different as the explanation. 
And I was thinking about this afterwards because in the tradition of Christopher Lockhead, who I think explains this the best, he talks about how better is how you make a comparison, but different is how you force a choice. And I think there's nuance here when we talk about it with the politicians. And I love the way that you just said it with the insider-outsider thing, because it's not just like different of saying I'm an outsider and I'm on the outside. And I like to think of it as it's like it's apples to apples and then apples to oranges and then apples to eight balls. We're like apples to apples. We can make a comparison apples to oranges. It's like, Oh, you're kind of the same, but you're a little bit different, but you're both still fruit and apples to eight balls is like, please don't bite that, but it can predict the future. So it's exciting. (laughs) And, and maybe that's the idea, like, especially with these incumbents is they're really like trying to be apples to oranges different. We're still fruit, still a Republican, still want to capture that vote. But like that insider outsider perspective is just like really, really interesting. Well, I think what successful, I'll call it again, our focus today, incumbent politicians, professional politicians, people have had elective office. They also want to maintain that, again, our favorite word, that narrative, that perception that they are outsiders. Question is, outside of what? Answer, Hmm. outside of Washington. That they are outside of Washington. And this is frankly why you see that former governors have a much higher rate of success at running for president than senators, right? The, the, the road to the White House is littered with the corpses of senators who have run for president. And, and, and you get it, right? Because senator, you think of yourself as kind of a junior president. There are only, you know, a hundred of you. You're, you know, you're elected to a longer period of time. You don't work as hard, right? <laughs> frankly. You're, you're able to give speeches and think about broad national things. You think of yourself as a junior president. But the challenge for a senator is how do I present myself as somehow being a maverick, right? That was the whole John McCain thing. I'm a maverick. How do you present yourself as an outsider to Washington, D.C.? That's the hard part for a senator. It's much easier for a governor, Chris Christie, for example, it's even easier for a Donald Trump who isn't, I'll say, saddled with the baggage, baggage in the sense of having it more difficult to present an outsider perspective, even though he is in many respects the ultimate insider after a while. So it's what you're describing here is kind of the, 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 the I think, the crux of being a political entrepreneur as an incumbent politician an elected politician of whatever office, is how do you still portray that perception that you are the outsider? That's the real crux here. I want to ask you about how the upstarts deal with the incumbents, because it's interesting to me, like I would think if I was a political strategist, and I don't think anybody would ever hire me as a political strategist, but I would think you want to go after the incumbent. I would think you'd want to attack them. But I was noticing with Vivek, he's taking a very, very different approach. I mean, he's calling President uh, Trump, I think, the best president of this century or something like that. So how do the how do sort of the outsiders think about their strategy with respect to the incumbents? Because Vivek is not really running to be the presidential nominee in this in this cycle. I mean, that's the answer. He's not running against Donald Trump. 
right? That that's your answer right there, Jack. Right. So so he's not he's not competing against Donald Trump. He's, he, he, he's just he's just not. So the the incumbent would be Joe Biden, but for this Republican primary, Vivek is not running against Donald Trump. Is he trying to become the vice president? Is that his strategy? It's vice president. It's the next election cycle. I, I mean, it's politics is a long game, especially if you're not, you know, in your mid seventies or eighties. <laughs> if you're, if you're in your, and 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 honestly, all of these guys and gals, they all think they're going to live forever. That's there's so many parallels between. You know, the high-functioning sociopaths we have in politics and the high-functioning sociopaths we have in, in business and economics. So, uh, you know, your septuagenarian CEO, they think they're going to live forever. That, 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 it's the same with politicians. It's the same with CEOs and rich people in general. Right? They all think they're going to live forever. Uh, and, you know, we can go off on that. that, that that's a fascinating topic, frankly. Uh, but the to your question about Vivek, who is he running against? He's not re- he, he's running against the other non-Trump primary candidates. That's who Vivek is running against. He has the advantage of being the outsider. He has the advantage of being the uh, an entrepreneur, an effective political entrepreneur, but he's not running against Donald Trump. So the idea is he's trying to effectively set a foundation for thinking he's playing the long game here. He's realizing eventually 100%. if he can be one of the last two or three standing here, he's setting a foundation for the future. Exactly. Whether that's being a VP candidate, whether that's being the, you know, a front runner for a post Donald Trump world, because that, that's one of the fascinating things about Donald Trump, and it's a, it's a really interesting thing when we think about, you know, this basic question about incumbent politicians. Are you starting a movement, right? Is there something, is, is, is there a dynastic element to what you are establishing that goes beyond you, the, the incumbent, right? Um, or... And, and, and the or is almost, in American politics, is almost always the case. The, because the or is, if you are successful as an outsider, it typically means you're a billionaire, right? I'm thinking about a, a Ross Perot. I'm thinking about a Donald Trump. Uh, I'm thinking about anybody who's been successfully able to wage an, a true insurgency against the, the, the political machinery. It takes a lot of money. And, you know, it's what, what Bloomberg half-heartedly tried to do in the last election cycle. So, you know, there, there, there's, that's, a, that's a particular animal here. Again, for the same reason that, that these billionaires who run for office think they're going to live forever, they also don't think, you know, my opinion is they don't think in terms of, oh, I'm just, I'm just a person who's the front person of a broader political movement or new political party. No, no, no. They are it, right? In their own mind and how it's presented to the world. So, you know, I don't, I, 
you can talk about MAGA as a political movement. You can talk about all this. I really don't think that there is a political movement beyond Donald Trump, the political entrepreneur himself. So for a Vivek, that is an enormous opportunity. There's not a hand-picked successor. There's not an apparatus around Trumpism that prevents anyone, including Vivek, from coming in and claiming that mantle for the future. So it's very canny, right? It's very smart, it's all that. But I, I really think that that's the way to think about that particular dynamic. And just one more on Vivek. So if, if yeah. he is more successful than he thinks he's going to be, then he's going to obviously have to find some way to pivot this strategy to some degree because he can't run again. If it's just him and Trump standing at the end, it can't be Trump is the greatest president of the century and I see nothing wrong with him. He's going to have to come up with something, right? Well, I don't think it is going to be just him and Trump at the end. And the reason I say that is that, well, for two reasons. One, so many of these primaries have, they've, they've changed their rules so that they are also no longer proportional representation, right? So let me back up a second. Proportional representation is that the number of votes you get corresponds proportionally to the representation you have. Yeah. Most democracies, that's how they do their version of Congress or parliament, right? So, and that's why they can have multiple political parties. Because you're a political party, you only get 5% of the vote. Well, you get 5% of the representatives, proportional representation. Primary system, both political parties, historically had a pretty high degree of proportional representation. So that let's say I got, you know, 15% of the vote in New Hampshire. Well, or on, you know, any of the Super Tuesday at Florida. I got 15% of the vote in Florida. Well, I would get 15% of Florida's delegates to the national convention. So, you know, I can be a candidate and I can get that mid-teen result. I can, I can keep accruing delegates in every state that I run in. What that leads to then is that you've got more people at the end more people at the end who with something say, look, there's nobody's got a plurality or people have got a plurality. No one has a majority. So two changes have been made. The Democratic Party was the first one to make these sort of changes when they implemented what are called superdelegates, meaning a big chunk of the delegates to the Democratic Party and now the Republican Party aren't chosen through an election at all. They're chosen by dint of, oh, you're part of the party system, et cetera. So it's a big, like I say, it's a bigger chunk for the Democrats than the Republicans, but both parties do that now. The other change, though, is that both parties, but particularly the Republican Party going into this cycle, have changed to a winner-take-all version of the delegates for most of the of the state uh, competitions, the state primary competitions, either winner take most or winner take all, meaning that you are the vague or whoever, you get 20% of the votes. You don't get 20% of the delegates. You get bupkis. <laughs> you get nothing. 
So it's it's. I think in all likelihood, the Republican primary is over on Super Tuesday, which is, you know, March 4th. Because at that point, with the changes in the rules, even though Trump probably won't get a majority, having a plurality, being the largest vote getter in these primaries, lets him take all or most of all of the delegates from those competitions. So... There have been some significant rule changes in, in both political parties over time to make, I'll call it, primary competition less meaningful. It's, what, so the, it's a long answer, but the result, Jack, is that I don't think it's Trump and anyone at the end. I think it's just Trump, and I think that gets, that gets settled very quickly. Similarly, on the uh, Democrat side, it's just Biden and that gets gets settled very quickly. It's it, we should talk about why that's just you know so disappointing. And again, it it goes back to this notion of a bimodal distribution. A vast majority of Americans do not want Trump Biden again. A a super majority of Americans do not want this race again. <laughs> but that is the race we're going to get because of the way that the structure is set up, both in our electorate, our overall system of two political parties, and now the primary system changes that goes to this winner-take-all or winner-take-most approach in each of the primary competitions. It's interesting because historically you've seen, you know, when there's all these candidates at the beginning, the strategy of the candidates that are below the, the person that's winning is, I want to be the, the last guy standing. I want to be the second guy and then I can go toe to toe. But it seems like that strategy is over now. Like with this new approach, like they can't, you can't win that way anymore. Well, here, here's how it can work. If you, if you start on, and this is what DeSantis wanted to have happen. So, so DeSantis knows that how the rules have changed. Trump does not have a majority. Of, vote, of Republican voters in, in, in pretty much any primary. He doesn't have that majority. He's got a plurality against multiple competitors. The rules have changed now, really at the direction of Trump and his organization, because, again, if the question for today is, how does an incumbent politician succeed? You change the structure of your party, and if you can, the structure of the, of the general election to reward the incumbent, <laughs> right? That's, that's the big thing. We can, th th there are two things you try to do. One, you try to maintain that perception that I am an outsider. I am a challenger. I have energy. I'm, an in, I'm not your typical incumbent because nobody wants that. And two, because you are an incumbent, because you do have access to the, I'll call it the rule setting, you try to change the rules to favor your position. So that's what Trump did. DeSantis knew this. So the DeSantis strategy all along was, I'm going to present myself as the only competition to Donald Trump and the Republican primaries. Because if, if it's just Trump and DeSantis, uh, choice one and choice 1A, right, then that becomes a race. That becomes a race. It's exactly what happened in the, uh, the Democrat primary. You, you, if you recall, right, 
Biden was an afterthought. It was going to be Bernie. Bernie was winning. And that was freaking everyone in the Democratic Party off. You remember, Elizabeth Warren drops out. Mayor Pete, at that time, not Secretary, Mayor Pete drops out. All the competitors drop out, get behind Biden after that, I guess it was the South Carolina uh, primary, to make it a two-person race so that they could beat Bernie. Today, and this is, this is what DeSantis wanted, he wanted to be a two-person race for the primary because that could have made it work. But a, you know, he, was, he, did, he was not able to execute on that, on that vision. Right. Clearly not. I mean, his campaign is in free fall. He's essentially, I, I think, out. Right. But, but here's the, I guess, the, the final thing. If you're not successful in collapsing it to a two-person race in a system where it's winner-take-all or winner-take-most, all you're doing as the secondary candidates in the Republican primary are currently doing, all you're doing is for show, for whatever your long game happens to be. And for DeSantis, there is no, there, there is no fallback. I mean, he, he had a strategy, knock everybody else off, make it a, a choice one and choice 1A. That failed, and now he's out of luck. I, you know, Christie, Haley, Tim Scott, I think they are all, I'll call them legitimately running for the the nomination. That's not to say there's anything illegitimate about what Vivek is doing, but what I think Vivek is doing is not running to be the presidential nominee. He's not, he knows it's not going to be a one in one A choice. Uh, he knows it's going that it, that, so long as there are multiple candidates, Trump gets a plurality, Trump wins, period, end of story. Uh, I, I think all of the candidates now, including even DeSantis, right, have to now wrestle with that and say, well, why am I staying in the race then? It's interesting, too, from the perspective of the incumbent, it, it's almost like the strategy here, you know, if the deck is so stacked in your favor, is to disengage to some degree. I mean, Trump is not going to do any debates. Biden's not going to do any debates. He, you know, Trump's on Tucker Carlson instead of the debates. I mean, they don't need to debate any issues. They kind of just sit back and enjoy it and win. You got it, Jack. I, I mean, and look, to be honest, this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always been. Again, it's the, these are the, the two rules for, again, an established politician. Create an image as an outsider to the degree you can. And two, change the rules or adjust, edit the rules to preserve your position to win a general election. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about the issues that the incumbents focus on, you know, because we talked last week about how political entrepreneurs or the upstart entrepreneurs pick the issues they're focusing on, but it doesn't seem like the incumbents really even have to do that. It doesn't seem they have to say, like, here's my issue, at least at this point, you know, they just got their advantage. Well, it, yes and no. The no is when it does become one of those two-person races. Right in that in the, either the primary setting or the general election, there, 
you need to out outsider your opponent and you need to be an have a perception that you are the agent of change to be a to be a word right. so it, it's absolutely right that an incumbent tries to run on their record mainly because they're you're forced to run on your record but more so than running on your record, what you want to run on is a vision for how things are going to be better in the future. Uh, so narratives are still crucially important, but they're really only important in the American system when it's a two-person race. Uh, otherwise, you know, both in our general presidential election, but also now in, increasingly in our primaries, Whoever gets the most votes, there's no, you know, 50% plus, well, I, I, let me take that back. In the general election, it's still 50% plus one. In the primaries now, it's the plurality that wins all or most of the delegates. So it's, it's really in these two-person races where you as the incumbent, the non-front runner, have got to put on your A-game and participate in that sort of political dialogue, debates, you know, heavy advertisement, all that stuff. Otherwise, you want to get to that point where you want to save your resources for when you are in that two-person race. So for somebody like Christy, I'm thinking like we obviously got Vivek and those types of people on one side. We've got the incumbents who actually like Trump and Biden, who actually were the nominees on the other side. Like how would someone like Christy think about setting their strategy? I mean, they've obviously got a pretty big uphill battle. But how would they think about like setting their strategy to, to try to be successful? Well, your, your, your hope is, is that everyone else drops out. Everyone wants to be the Joe Biden of this uh, you know, primary system. So, so all of the Republicans second tier, they want to happen to them what happened to Joe Biden three years ago, right? where, where everyone drops out to lend their support to you to go head to head against the front runner. That's not going to happen now, now that you've got Vivek in here, right? Because he's not dropping out to, you know, help somebody against Donald Trump. He's not going against Donald Trump, but he's, he's the perfect stalking horse for Donald Trump, Vivek is. He's the perfect stalking horse. You know, he's the one out there That's, that's his role in this campaign. That's his role in this campaign. Can I make one other thing about setting the rules? Because it's, it's, this is also relevant for the general campaign. So one of the major, I mean, this is the foundational issue, I think, with so much of the effort um, and I have to do the obligatory, but truthful saying, the false effort, right? The, the lie that the last national election was rigged. That is not true. Donald Trump did not win. He really didn't. Really didn't. What is also true is that vote by mail, absentee, all of the structural changes for general elections, these are changes in the rules that do tend to favor 
the Democrat nominee. It doesn't mean they're illegitimate. Frankly, I, I think that efforts to allow more participation rather than less is a good thing, not a bad thing. But this is an example of, again, what we're describing, structural changes to try to cement or increase the positioning, help the positioning of an incumbent party. It's exactly the same when you talk about gerrymandering, the way that state legislatures draw the borders of their congressional representations and the like, of the congressional districts. These are all efforts to change the rules legally. Doesn't mean it's an illegitimate anything, but you can take it too far. And gerrymandering is a perfect example of this, where you change the districts and make these crazy districts to maximize the, the electoral potential of your party. These are all examples of what we're talking about. So it's, it's as all, and this is also true for markets, right? We could bring this right back to markets when we're talking about meme stocks, What's the role of, you know, payment for order flow? You know, the apes talking about, oh, the, the, it's all stacked against us. You're right. <laughs> it is. It is. And that's frankly why I get so angry. It's the right word. When I hear, what's his name? Vlad, whoever, the, uh, like the Robin Hood CEO talking about, oh, we're democratizing Wall Street. Give me a freaking break, right? It, the rules of Wall Street are set by the incumbents. There's no democratization of Wall Street that's possible. Well, there's a, there's a literal democracy or maybe a, a narrative democratization of Wall Street, right? We want to set the new rules to then be able to play by the rules that serve us. That's exactly it. That's exactly what I mean, Matt, right? So the, the, to, to democratize Wall Street is the story, the narrative to say, oh, here, you the little guy, you're going to have a chance. And you get in there, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. So it's, it's setting the rules. That's the way you, you stay in power, you win, right? You set the rules and you create the narrative to whatever degree you can, that you're the outsider who is on the side of the little guy. It's true in politics, and it's absolutely the same true, same truth in markets. Yeah, it was interesting. Go, going back to Christy, I don't know if you guys ever listened to the All In podcast. Um, I, I, do, I do occasionally. Um, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, <laughs> I guess interesting is the word to describe it, but they've actually yeah, had thanks three- for Thanks for taking that spear for us, Jack. I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, yeah, they, they've had, they've had three of the candidates on, um, you know, they've had Robert Kennedy, they've had Vivek, and then they had Chris Christie recently. And it was just interesting. Like when I was listening to Chris Christie, I was thinking back to what you said last week, because you could, you could kind of see this idea of, of going to the polls. So when they had Kennedy on and when they had Vivek on, they said exactly what you said last week, which is this whole, I like what I hear. 
like it, you know they do their little thing at the end where they talk and they, I, I hate referring to this but the besties uh do their little thing at the end oh where they talk God. and they yeah. were like yeah. i like what i hear and Christie, at least, you know, regardless of what you think about him as a human being or as a politician, he made an attempt to go on there and kind of exist in the middle. Like he was picking apart the Trump indictments and saying some of these are politically motivated. Some of these have, you know, great, you know, are, are strong indictments. He, he was really trying to be in the middle. And at the end, they were like, yeah, you know, we weren't impressed at all. We didn't we didn't like what we heard at all. And I just thought that was interesting because it kind of describes exactly what you were talking about last week um, in terms of, the, you know, the, the need to be on these polls. Yeah, it, it's, it gets back to that point we were raising earlier where we're going to have Trump and Biden again, and nobody wants it. Um, as, you know, there's a lot of documentation for this, but roughly speaking, 25% of Americans characterize themselves as Republicans. I'm a Republican. About 25% of Americans characterize themselves, a little less than 25%, characterize themselves as Democrats. So it's in that 20 to 25% for, for each of, those, uh, of our two political parties. More than 50% of Americans say, ah, I'm unaffiliated, I'm in the middle, you know, I don't, I don't think of myself as either party. Record numbers. An even greater percentage say, oh my God, please, I do not want Trump Biden again. We just can't, we can't do this again. But that's what we're going to get. Why? The answer is that vast middle who, yeah, you don't count. You're invisible. You are the dark matter of the universe when it comes to selecting the candidates. You are, right? And those two, the, the 44% of Americans who do count because they are participants in that, in the party choice system, because of their distribution getting farther and farther apart, yeah, these are the candidates we're going to get because the rules are set to favor the incumbent president if, if you're, a, you know, if, whatever party you're in, so that's going to be Biden for the Democrats and the rule setter, the plurality winner, if you're the challenger, which is Trump. That's it. Could have been different if DeSantis had been better as a campaigner, if he had, if he had succeeded in his effort to become, you know, the only other choice to Trump, but he failed. And so that's what we're going to get because that's how the rules are set up. It's wild to me that, and I just pulled it up on Pew because I saw this when I was reading stuff for this. Voter turnout, 2022. You guys remember the number? Do you know the number? I had to look it up. So do you no want idea. to take a guess? No idea. 30%. Total voter turnout for the 20. Uh, 20 presidential election was two thirds of voting eligible population, according yep, to Pew. Yep, it's always, yes, yeah, over 50%. But the 2022, what was it, 30%? Yeah, if you drop back, you get, yeah, like 37% or something like that. So it's yeah. it's crazy. But in the in the general election, 66% turns out and basically is split even keel Republican and Democrat. 
So it's basically like if 33% shows up for each party, then 33 minus five. Like we're, we're basically talking about a vote that boils down to like 10 to 15% of independent voters helping to decide any election. Should they even be pulled into showing up that day? And that's at the presidential level. And those numbers get even, even smaller to your point, like in who decides these candidates and how much that feeds this bimodal distribution in a two-party system. Much smaller, much yeah. smaller. Uh, what what drives turnout, I mean, I think actually the 2022 turnout in a number of states uh, was maybe even a little bit higher than expected when you have an issue like Dobbs, you know, the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. So, you know, that's the other issue that you've got, you know, at play here in that that incumbents and challengers spend a lot of time thinking about. These are the issues you think about in when you get to that head-to-head competition, whether it's in the general election or whether it's in the, a primary that allows a, a head-to-head competition. It's what drives turnout, and in particular, what are the issues beyond the head-to-head competition that can drive turnout? So. To take the, I'll, I'll point to kind of two aspects of that. The, the first aspect of this was that, um, I mean, this was this really goes back to uh, Clinton, early Bush days. The, the the realization that the way to win a, a presidential election was not to I'm not going to say not to be competitive in every precinct, but that you wanted to drive out your turnout in the precincts that were yours. That for a, you know, in our system, right, with that electoral system, it's the total number of votes within the state at the presidential level. So it's, and this is, you know, the Trump organization is really good at this. Uh, Other organizations have been really good at this. The goal is to drive up voting turnout in your dominant groups. It's every, every vote works for you. So it's not, you don't have to, win a close place and you know you, oh we're 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 neck and neck in this in this county or precinct or whatever however you're you're dividing up the votes um that doesn't matter you you'd you'd much rather have okay i'm i'm winning you know 80 to 20 in this in this area the trick here is i've got to drive up the turnout in that area so how do you do that? You do that in one of two ways. You, you have to say to everyone, your vote matters, because that's one of the big reasons why turnout drops down. When people think, oh, my vote, what does it matter? My guy's going to win anyway. So, you know, I don't need to go and I don't need to go vote. So this seems counterintuitive, but one of the things you need to do to create a sense of urgency among all of your voters, including the voters in areas that 
dominate in is you've got to create a sense of without your vote, I'm going to lose. Or you create as this that your vote is an affirmation of your identity, that you are a good person to want to go vote for this candidate. So those are the two things you want to try to do to drive up turnout, even in areas where you have a commanding lead. Because the dynamics in those areas is often that people say, oh, everybody I know is going to vote for Trump or everyone I know is going to vote for, you know, Biden. You know, what do I need to vote for? What do I need to vote for? That can be true at a statewide level. But what you want on these contested states is that you don't want that dynamic to take root in any of your strongholds, right? The, you know, the urban areas, if you're the Democrat candidate, the rural areas. So that's why everyone is talking about suburban moms right now. How do you create an issue area that gets them to want to vote for a candidate that nobody or very few people actually want to have running. That goes to issue area where you want to make this an election not about the candidate, but about something else that is important to them. That's what we're going to see in this national election between Trump and Biden. The Trump campaign will try to make it not about Trump, but about some issue around the other side, similarly with the Biden campaign, because none of them are intrinsically, none of the Republican voters are intrinsically excited, or few of the Republican voters are intrinsically excited about voting for Trump. Not enough Republican voters are intrinsically excited about voting for Trump in order to win the election. Ditto for the Democrats. So this election coming up, this national election, will be the most negative campaign that's ever been waged in the history of mankind. It will be the most divisive, polarizing, negative campaign that has ever been waged in the history of, if not the world, certainly the United States. Because that's what you do when your own voters don't like, don't particularly like the candidate that you're putting forward. You've got to drive turnout. To do that in this situation, you've got to create a notion of your identity is at stake and that there is an existential issue which your vote must serve the purpose for. It's going to be, it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. The worst ever. Makes me think of that Danny Kahneman idea that we don't make choices between things. We make choices between descriptions of things. And if the thing we're chasing here is voter turnout and we have to chase that with identity, then the strategy to play becomes like, what's, if you don't identify with this candidate, then what's the thing you both, you identify as, as being not? like your, your anti-thing, because that's going to define your identity more clearly than the candidate that. you're, you're the electing. the answer is, you are not evil. 
Yeah, so, in both cases, right? In both cases. So it, you already see this, certainly, you know, you already see this, not certainly. I'm, I'm not going to pick on either one. You absolutely see this with both the Republican positioning and the Democrat positioning. The other side is evil. Period, full stop. Yeah, you, you, you try to say, you don't want to say that every Republican voter is evil. What you say is that MAGA Republicans, they are evil. This is existential. It's the end of the Republic if they get their way. Similarly, it's not, uh, it's not all Democratic voters. It's those woke, leftist, socialist Democrats, that they are evil. They're un-American. It is treason. You've already seen this. The scariest part to me is that if you believe in your heart that an election, a choice, is existential, that the other side is evil, then quite rationally, you should stop at nothing to win that election because you're doing it in self-defense. You're doing it to defend the country. If that's what you truly believe, you stop at nothing. And that is, that, that logic goes for both a Republican candidate and a Democrat candidate. Everything is fair game because the alternative is the end of the system, right? That, that's absolutely what both sides are presenting to the American people. It is a choice between good and evil. And to the degree that that takes root, and I think it absolutely has already taken root and it's going to flower, uh, it, it's... It's, um, yeah, it's not just depressing. It's, it's, uh, it is the end of a lot of things. It, 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 it is the breaking of a system. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that that is what breaks the system. I, I think that's the episode topic for one of the next few episodes. <laughs> when we, when we shatter it, what comes in the wake of it and it's, yeah, that's a whole other episode, I think. Uh, is there is there any reason, though, Ben, for optimism here? You know, it's, it's funny. Like, my, my dad has become a big listener of the podcast, and he really likes it. And, you know, he learned so much from it. But, like, his feedback on our last episode was, you know, it, the outlook for this is not very good. Like, is there anything positive we can take? Is there any way, you know, we've got Trump and Biden. We don't want Trump and Biden. We've got this crazy polarization. You know, it, it ends really badly. I mean, other than we, I mean, we've talked about coming from the bottom up. I mean, is there anything to any reason for optimism that this could go the other way? Well, I don't know what go the other way means. Right? I really don't. I, I, I really don't. I don't. I, I, or, I, mean, I think we have to call things by their proper names. And you, you look at the way that the rules are set up. And I, I don't see how it can be anything else other than Trump versus Biden. And in a Trump versus Biden competition where your own voters are not wild about you, the candidate, 
the way to win is to demonize the other side. So that's what they're going to do. I think it's not optimism, but the necessity as a thinking, feeling human being is to not allow yourself to be drawn into the hate, to not allow yourself to go for the demonization of the other side. My personal view is that that you know I I I'll be out with this. So so I I I think that 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 Trump is not qualified to be president of the United States. It's it's uh, I do think it is a, a breaking of many things. Um, I, I'm not, and, and I think you guys know, and I say that, it, that does not make me a Biden supporter, but I do think that Trump is the, the breaking. Where I think we come out on this, or where, where do, I don't want to talk about we, I want to talk about me. I think for me, what it means is doubling down on a view that I'm not going to, I'm never going to support the breaking of our system. I'm also not going to go in for the demonization of the people who participate in this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to build as much as I can my own community and network to not be immune to this, but to be insulated from this, not as impact on my macro life, but on its impact on my heart. That's not, there's nothing optimistic about that, but I think that that's, that that is the way forward through what I think is going to be a really difficult time. Well, I mean, the optimism to some degree is the more people that do what you're doing, the better it's going to be. The more people that build that community around themselves, the more people that aren't try to understand what's being done to us and try not to be influenced by us. You know, it, it's probably not going to make some massive, you know, difference on at a higher level, but the more people that do that, the better we are. I think it makes a difference for what comes next. I think it can make a difference both to diminish the direct impact of how bad it can be, but it also gives a center of gravity for what comes next. The most difficult thing, I think, in these situations is for the people in the middle the dark matter of this political universe to know that you are not alone. I think that's the powerful message that all of us have to get across as best we can now. You are not alone. You don't have to give your heart to one of or the other of these political parties. You can absolutely believe, as I do, that one of these candidates is demonstrably and remarkably 
more of a disaster than the other candidate without believing that other citizens are similarly evil or or um, bad people. Yeah, I get a little tongue-tied with this because I I find that I write these words better than I can speak these words. But this is going to be the challenge, I think, for all of us as Americans, as human beings over the next three or four years is not to give our hearts over, our allegiance over, to either of these political parties. Clear eyes, full hearts. That's the, it keeps coming back to that, to, to recognize what's going on with clear eyes, but to maintain the fullness of heart that doesn't give yourself over to blind allegiance to either of these political parties, neither of which deserves your blind allegiance. Yeah, I think I think what you said is so important, you know, thinking we are we are human beings, we are Americans before we are attached to these political parties. Um, you know, to me that's just that, that sums it up really well. Thank you. And 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 it's hard because it's it's we're presented with a choice that is a real choice. I, I think there's a real choice between Trump and Biden given if that's the, that's the choice. I think that's a real choice for me. It doesn't mean I'm happy with the, the lesser of the two evils. And I'm not for the lesser of two evils. Uh, but I can both, A, make that distinction and believe that what comes out of this is a rejection of both evils, both the lesser and the greater. I have to think that. That's the optimism. That's the hope, right? Because if you if you don't think that, then you do give yourself over, and I, I get it, to, to, to the nihilism of it doesn't matter. And to be clear, your political participation, your vote is the smallest part of your political participation. It's the smallest, most inconsequential part of your political participation. Your political participation is talking like we're talking right now. What we're doing right now is political participation of the most important type. Seems weird, but it's absolutely the truth. It is absolutely the truth. Well, it's like you, you have to be, I, I think you're right. I mean, you have to be able to talk about this and, you know, well, interesting. I, I've mentioned before, like I'm, you know, I live in Connecticut now, but I lived in Georgia before and you know, you have people on both sides there, but this is stuff you can't even talk about. Like, you know, when, when I was down in Georgia, it's like, d- don't bring up that issue. You know, don't ever bring up that issue. You just don't, you know, it's almost like we've gotten to a point where it's like, we, we don't want to have respectful conversation with each other about these things because it's just not worth it. You know, it's just going to end in some sort of battle. So I guess from the ground up, you know, we can work on trying to do that. And, you know, we're doing this in a public forum here with the podcast, but the, the more all of us do that, you know, the more we might realize that we're more similar than we think. All of these things have happened before. And um, 
wrote a couple of notes about this, but uh, Eugene Ionesco wrote this great play um, called Rhinoceros. And it's about trying to answer the question, well, how does it all deteriorate where people give themselves over to a political ideology, either way on the right or way on the left? How, how does that happen? And the play is about just the utter banality of it all, that human beings become a rhinoceros. Oh, look, there's another rhinoceros. Until ultimately, it's all rhinoceroses. There's only one human left. <laughs> right? And, and this is what you're describing, Jack, where it's, it's harder and harder to find other humans to talk with, that people have transformed themselves, they've given themselves over into either one side or the other. The answer to that is what we're doing right now, talking directly about it. The answer to that is to have conversations with other human beings. You're right. You'll, you'll run into more and more rhinoceroses, either rhinoceroses on, you know, the left or rhinoceroses on the right. But the way we have to be brave is we have to keep having these conversations to identify other human beings and so that we know we are not alone. It can seem like it's a world full of rhinoceroses on the left and the right. And our bravery has to be, we keep trying to find other human beings to have these conversations where we haven't given our hearts over to one of these political ideologies who, trust me, don't give a rat's ass about us as human beings. So Ben, let's connect this back to markets and thinking about investors. And I'm, I'm so caught up in this, and maybe we just start here for a second the identity of getting people on the side of an issue. It feels so much like when we talk about the apes and we talk about the meme stocks and we talk about this stuff, you get people to act, you get people to turn out for an election, you get people to buy or short or do whatever when you tie it to their identity in a way that you can't get it quite so pronounced in any other way. You've talked a lot about this, that identity in the apes. You want to comment? Well, all I'll say is that it's the acting together from the bottom up is the most powerful thing in human history. It really is. The danger is that if you go marching onto the entrenched machine guns of the, of the man, right? So... I am all about forming a social movement from the bottom up, from everything we've been talking about with politics, everything we're talking about investing in markets. What, and this was always the, the, the big issue I had with, you know, when I would go on a crypto podcast and the like was, people say, well, why aren't you coming out in favor of Bitcoin and, you know, saying that Bitcoin's the answer and we have to get rid of the dollar and all like that. And it was like, you know, brother, count me out on that. Because what, what you are doing, and, I, and, I, and I, you've got the best intentions in the world, but what you're doing is you're running into the entrenched machine gun nest of the man. I, 
play Dungeons and Dragons still after all these years. And the best saying I've got is being lawful good doesn't mean being lawful stupid. That embracing the power of community action and shared beliefs from the bottom up to act for transparency and liberty and equality, all of these things that I really believe in and I'm really determined to move forward, you don't have to go and, like I say, play on the other guy's battlefield. You don't. You don't have to form a political party and go up against the entrenched you know, Democrats or Republicans. You don't have to go, oh, we're going to do options trading in, you know, some mid-cap stock and, boy, you know, Moas, you know, to the moon, we're all going to be zillionaires. Oh, my God. That You're just going to get mowed down. So that can seem like inaction, but what it really is, is choosing your own battleground. And that applies for markets, it applies for investing, it applies for politics as well. What does it mean to be an investor? For me, it means I want to be a fractional owner of a company that makes real things for real people in the real world. Brothers, that is not options trading. Right? That ain't it. That ain't it. What it is, is starting a company. What it is, is being an investor in a real company, maybe not even in a public company. What, what it is, is, is recognizing that that goal of being responsible for your economic future and your family's economic future and your family's social and political future, you're not going to achieve that by acting on some big constructed stage, whether that is public markets or public elections. You think it doesn't matter that to act on the small scale, the local scale? I am telling you that's the only thing that matters. That's the only place where you're going to express these crucial human attributes, whether they're attributes of your political self or your economic self. Sorry, I got wrapped up there, but you, you, you got me. You got me. No, I just think it's so important that we bring and this is why this is why a lot of your work at Epsilon Theory resonates, I think, with so many people, because there are these common threads between what we see in politics, what we see in markets, how identity gets wrapped up in things. And sometimes we lose sight of what we're trying to accomplish. And when, we're, when we are investing, we are defining some future reality that we're trying to bring uh, forward. And that future reality probably includes your neighbors and the, your family and the people you care about. And when that gets distorted into options trading or I hate everybody with a blue or a red hat on, then the very fabric gets pulled apart. And that's terrifying. It is. And it's so natural and it's so easy to get lulled into it. One, 
on the market side because it's it's the appeal of you know winning money making money it's the allure of the casino on the on the political side it's the allure of hey i'm part of a of a team of a tribe a winning team and winning tribe I, I get it i get the pull i feel the pull but that's what require that's why it requires of us jack to your question earlier the bravery to put that in its proper place to understand that options trading is no different than going to a casino where the house has got an enormous edge, recognizing that participating in national politics on either party side is the equivalent of, you know, rooting for a sports team, but where the consequences are much more damaging for your own psyche. And, and understanding, you know, that can be a part of your life. I get it. And there are consequences for all of these things. And my focus, our focus, should be on the things that matter, which is that participation politically and economically at a local, smaller scale that's not, at, that's not playing within the battlefields that big media, big tech, and big politics wants you to play on. That is a profoundly powerful statement. And I'm going to tell everybody, rewind 10 seconds or whatever, hear that again, because that idea about participation and how it matters and picking, not all fields have to be battlefields. I played soccer on a field in Gettysburg once. It was weird, but it was a real reminder about what actually matters. Thank you, Matt. I, I appreciate you using, I, I, I felt as I was speaking at the, that, that word battlefield, it's, it's, it's not, it's not all of what I mean. I think it is a battlefield when you go and play on public markets or on public elections. I think that is a true battlefield. The fields I'm talking about participating in, Matt, you're right. I, I think there's a cooperative element that once you experience it, it's, you never, it's a positive energy that is truly sustaining for a life well-lived. So my vote is we do an optimism episode. I know we've got a bunch of comments and questions wow. that have been coming. Yeah, we, we're going to do an optimism episode. We're going to do, do we got to do something too with uh, the Epsilon Theory Forum people. We've got some great questions there. We're getting some comments on YouTube, on Twitter, uh, on email. Keep those coming in. Those are great. We should probably just do a questions episode because the dialogue around this has been beyond what I hoped for when we started doing this. Let's, so, guys, let, let's, yeah. let's do that. So it's an optimism and it's a mailbag um, episode. The two go together really well, really well. Because what people want is a what's the way forward. And there will be optimistic aspects of that. Um, but being optimist doesn't mean being Pollyanna-ish, right? We have to recognize it's going to be a difficult path forward. We're going to have to be brave about it, but there is a path forward. I love that. That's that's uh, that's that's definitely what we should talk about next time. All right. So make sure you're subscribed or tell somebody we're coming back to that. I got notes for today. Let me summarize to take us out. So Ben, you you let us off with this idea that outsiders 
pretty much know how to differentiate better. And that's a rule when we're thinking about political entrepreneurs, especially the incumbents. And that's also why billionaires tend to do better than governors who tend to do better than senators, because the outsiders default know how to differentiate themselves better. Politics is a long game. You got to know the hand that you're going to play. And whenever you're playing a long game, the way you win is you change the rules so you can't lose. When <laughs> inside of those structural changes, I made a note to myself and I think nothing represents changing the rules of the game better than Calvin ball. So for the Calvin and Hobbes fans, you might remember the sport that Calvin plays where he is the creator of all the rules and therefore by creating all the rules, uh, he gets to always win. And what better game to play than the game that is your name with ball afterward. And that's a lot of what we're seeing here with the incumbent politicians. Now that leads to over time, a middle back to the widening gyre and the bimodal distribution, a middle that's an invisible middle. So the wire widens on the rhinoceroses to the left and right. And I love that story. I love that reference. But so long as the middle is invisible, so long as we're not talking to each other, it only gets worse. On the optimism talk, optimism is talk. And that's why we want to do this next episode about optimism with mailbag, with conversation, because that's how we get critical distance. That's how we can have Republican and Democrat friends. Yep. Knowing that we don't walk alone, and I, I pulled this quote out, and I don't know, are you a John Green fan at all? Do you know the name John Green? I do indeed. Yes. Oh, okay, I thought you did. And uh, and certainly, you know, the, the classic musical Carousel, right? Yep. So if you don't, there's there's a beautiful song. You probably know it. If you're if you're a soccer fan, you know Liverpool and the You'll Never Walk Alone from Jerry and the Pacemakers. And if you don't know the song, it's just it's an amazing song from an amazing musical. And John Green wrote an exceptional essay on this. And uh, in it has the quote again on You'll Never Walk Alone. He says there's two fundamental facts of being human, and they are one, whether or not uh, whether whether we can or not, we must go on. And also, number two, none of us ever walks alone. We may feel alone. In fact, we will feel alone. But even in the crushing grind of isolation, we aren't alone. Participation matters. We're not alone. We're all in this together. This is breaking news. Thanks, guys. Come back next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching Breaking News so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at Practical Quant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter. Ben Hunt is the co-founder and CIO of Second Foundation Partners. Jack Forehand is a principal at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is managing director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of Second Foundation Partners, Validia Capital, or Sunpoint Investments. Nothing in this podcast is investment advice.